So, welcome to eternity. <laughs> this was the title of a book written by the pastor of the Moody Bible Church, Aaron Lutzer, who happened to be a Canadian. He was pastor there for 36 years, stepping down in 2016. He wrote a book entitled Heaven and the Afterlife. And I'm going to borrow from his the introduction to his book. I thought it was so well written. Welcome to eternity. Five minutes after you die, whether you you will either have had your first glimpse of heaven with its euphoria and bliss, or your first genuine experience of unrelenting horror and regret. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. In those first moments, you will be either more you will be more alive than you have ever been. Vivid memories of your friends and your life on planet Earth will be mingled with a daunting anticipation of eternity. You will have had your first glimpse of Christ or your first encounter with evil as you have never known it, and it will be too late to change your address. Be wrong about a lot of things, but don't be wrong about where you're going to spend eternity. It's your choice. With God's help this morning, we're going to look at the gospel. We're going to look at how we can know for certain that we're going to go to heaven when we die. It's only the gospel that speaks to this topic. You won't hear about this uh, anywhere else. But we're grateful that God has a plan and he has a provision for us to know for certain that we're going to spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Our blessed God, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can be here today, that we can rejoice in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the precious words of the Lord Jesus Christ that promise us eternal life. And so, Father, we look to you today. I look to you for your help and your guidance. That you will help me as I speak, and also that you will enlighten the hearts of all present, that we would enjoy together the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's in our Savior's name I pray. Lead us and guide us. Amen. So. Here's an outline of some of our topics. We're not going to look at all nine of them today. We're just going to look at the first five, and maybe another time we'll look at the other ones. The Bible has a lot to say about uh, what's, what happens to us when we die. But I'd like to start today by looking at John 3.16. John 3.16. So if you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to John 3.16. Many of you know this off by heart, of course, and you've known it since you were a little child. And I hope you can rejoice in it again. But perhaps there's somebody here today you don't know about this verse, and you don't know the message of this verse. So I'm going to read it for you, John 3.16. It, it summarizes the gospel for us. John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Isn't that wonderful? Can the Lord Jesus Christ lie? He's promised us eternal life. Now let's look at this verse a little bit. Uh, we're just going to break it down a little bit. When we talk about God, who are we talking about? We're talking about the creator of the universe. He's not just a little figment of our imagination or somebody we've invented. 
He's the all-powerful, the all-knowing, infinite God. There's one God, and in his nature there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's a personal God, and we're made in his image. It says that God loves. Now, the word love has got distorted in our world today, but what does it mean? Because the Bible says that God is love. God gives. God is good. He wants our good. It says that God, God loves the world, the whole world, not just a select few. You know, in our society today, the word diversity is, is, is prominent. But uh, God invented diversity, right? We have people from all races, all national origins, color, religions, whatever. God loves everyone. And God, it's not, diversity is not a problem for God. He loves everyone. God doesn't love our sin, but he loves every human being. God loves the whole world. It says that God, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave. Love gives. And here's a, just as a little sidebar, a little exercise for you. I've mentioned this before, but it's been a blessing in my life. Take a piece of paper and write down the names of the people on the left-hand column, the people who you think you love and you want to love or you have a good feeling towards. And then across the top, write down some dates. And then in those other columns, write down, what, have you, what are you doing for these people? You say you love your spouse. Well, what are you doing for your spouse? Above and beyond what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, you say you love somebody else. Well, what are you actually doing for them? Because sometimes love is a bit of a fuzzy feeling, but we see in the Word of God that God loved, he loved the world, and he did something about it. He sent his only begotten son. And this was the most precious thing that he had. He gave his son to die for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, once again, this is not for a select few. It's for whoever believes in him. And it's for everyone. But we have to receive it. I'm going to come back to that a little bit. But here's the promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful promise. We can have eternal life. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, there's a very uh, telltale verse. It says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There are people who uh, <clears throat> are tormented and troubled because of death. The only response is the gospel. The only response is the gospel. And we're thankful that we can announce that today. So, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? Uh, it says that we have to believe. Well, I suggest to you that there are at least two ideas here. And one of them is there's a propositional truth to understand. What do I mean by that? Well, in John chapter 5, in John chapter 5, we read this. 
Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So these Pharisees, they understood what Jesus was saying. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus didn't clearly say that he was the son of God. Well, he actually did, and they got it. And they said, no, no, we don't believe that. We don't believe that. <laughs> That's why they were opposed to him. And Jesus says, well, how can you believe you who receive honor one from another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? So Jesus was clear that to have eternal life, you have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. There are a lot of people in this world today who, uh, uh, in our society even, people of different religious faiths, people who are agnostics, they don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And there are people who believe in Christ, but there's another step, because we know from the book of James that the devil also believes and he trembles. So we have to engage with Christ, not just head knowledge, but we have to trust in him. In John 6, verse 66, we read, From that time many of his disciples went back and waited, walked with him no longer. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So only in Christ do we have forgiveness of sins. Only in Christ do we have the promise of the resurrection. What is the alternative, dear friends, to believing in Christ? I suggest to you there's no good alternative. No good alternative. If you have one, let me know. So that's from our perspective. There's another perspective, and this is from God's perspective. Take it a step further. We need to be born again. And this is something that God does. We thought about that a little bit this morning at the Lord's Supper. And we read in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the power to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So this is, we step back a little bit, and God gets involved here. He says, not of blood. We're not Christians because our parents were Christians. We can't pass it on to our children. Nor the will of the flesh. We can't become a Christian by trying to become a Christian all on our own. Nor the will of man. As much as we'd like to, we can't force people to become Christians. <laughs> but of God. God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. And he can... Give us the power to become children of God. In John 3, and th verse 3, we, we read, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So God has to do something in our hearts. The, uh, <clears throat> the preacher Charles Hayden Spurgeon in the mid-1800s, it's interesting to read his biography, Thousands and thousands of people came to Christ through his preaching. Not only refused to give altar calls, but even discouraged people from coming to be counseled in an inquiry room. He feared that they might be lured into a fictitious confidence that their conversion actually took place. He urged them, go to your God at once. 
even where you are right now, cast yourself upon Christ. Cry out to God. God is present and God wants to hear from us. And if you want to be born again, if you want to come to God, cry out to God, and he'll uh, respond. Just looking at this a little further, in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, we get another good description, and we're just kind of going over these verses quickly because we want to get on to some other things as well. For most of you, it's a bit of a review. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses, we read, we read this. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and in sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. What's he saying here? We're dead in our sins. We were deceived by Satan. And we're depraved, our conduct. So there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of that except the grace of God. The grace of God. So <clears throat> God intervenes. We sang this morning, I think we sang it. Do we sing Amazing Grace? Yes, we sang Amazing Grace. Most of you know the story of John Newton, who was the author of this hymn. He was a slave trader, a cruel slave trader. In 1748, he got himself into a shipwreck, and he thought he was going to die. And he cried out to God, and God, God literally saved him from drowning. But he also turned to God and wrote this hymn. And that hymn, we sing it, and we understand it because of the grace of God. I don't know if you've... Uh, <clears throat> when you read through the Psalms, you get to Psalm 136. There's but I won't say it's an annoying psalm, but it's an interesting psalm because every in every in all the 26 verses it says, "And your mercy endures forever, and your mercy endures forever, and your mercy endures forever." And I think, well, isn't that? It sounds like kind of vain repetition, isn't it? But it, of course, it's not vain repetition. It's in the Word of God. But <clears throat> just a little sidebar here in the Book of Ezra. In the Book of Ezra. I'll just read it for you. Here's, here's the background of, the, of that psalm. In Ezra chapter 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says the king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. He's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So think about it. Here's a pagan king. God speaks to him and tells him, you've got to get the house built for God's people in Judah. You remember the Israelites were in captivity, and they come back, just making this story a little briefer. In chapter 3, after being 70 years in captivity, the group of them come back, we're talking about a year, 500 roughly, before Christ. And they come back, and they worship God. And in Ezra chapter 3, we read this in verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood together in their apparel with the trumpets and the Levites, 
and the sons of Azaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David the king. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. He is good. His mercy endures forever towards Israel. And then they go on to read, And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's household, old men, had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted all out for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy and the noise of the weeping, for the people shouted with a loud shout. And this, these people were so happy to be back in the temple and they were so um, taken up with it because they'd been in captivity. They didn't mind repeating, uh, the Lord's mercy endures forever, the Lord's mercy endures forever. The Lord's, they were just amazed how God had brought them from the captivity back to the temple, and they were all together worshiping God. So that gives a little bit of background to Psalm 136. We're just reading it through, and it gets a little annoying to read that over and over again. But they were taken up with his mercy. And so it is when we come to Christ and we have our sins forgiven, we sing amazing grace. We repeat these beautiful hymns because we're blessed by God's intervention. And we're, we, we cannot contain ourselves because of God's amazing grace. His mercy endures forever. And so it is as Christians, often in our Christian life, we experience that as well. And we are overwhelmed with praise for what God is doing. Who would have thunk that Cyrus would have used all his power to get the people back to Israel? But he did. That's history. In Ephesians chapter 2, moving on, and we'll just go over this very quickly. He says, by grace are you saved. Verse 4. Uh, no, verse... Eight, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So grace is apart from works. We can't work our way to heaven. And grace is unaffected by the degree of our sins. Maybe you're saying, I did some horrendous things. Someone has rightly said, sin always takes you further than you intended to go, keeps you longer than you intended to stay, and costs you more than you intended to pay. I don't know who wrote that, but it's pretty good. Sin always takes you further than you intended to go. Remember that uh, commercial for Lay's chips. You can't just have one. It's the same thing uh, if you have, you know, you can't just have one drink either if you have, if you have issues with that. It'll take you further than you want to go. And it'll keep you longer than you intended to stay and it will cost you more than you intended to pay. Sin can get in and give even your Christians a really bad detour. But God's grace is more powerful than sin. And God's grace can come and save us and put us on the right track. And it's a free gift. We can never earn it. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away, all things have become new. So this is the good news, brothers and sisters, friends, that God offers us eternal life. We have to believe in Christ, understand who he is, what he did, and then we trust in him, and then God gives us his Holy Spirit. So I'm going to move on a little bit. 
the assurance of salvation. I'm going to talk about the assurance of salvation. Some people struggle sometimes with the question if they are really saved and if they can know they are saved. It's a wonderful thing to know for certain that we're saved. There are times, of course, that there are Christians, professing Christians, who walk away from the faith. And there are people who we don't know if they were really saved and they just give it all up, or if they are truly saved and they're just really backslidden. But in First Corinthians, in First John, and I invite you to turn there because uh, the Word of God speaks to this in First John chapter five. We read this, and this would merit a whole big, long study, but we're just going to look at it briefly today. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So there you have it. He wants us to know for certain that we have eternal life. i got to tell you, I'm really happy that I know for certain that if I was to drop dead today, I'd go to be with the Lord. Um, and I've known that since I was 14 years old because the, I cried out to God and God came into my life and changed my life. I, I could talk about that more at another time, but that's, that's my blessing, and I've been blessed all my life to know that. So let's back up. What is his argument? What are these things that he's written? Well, he's written this whole epistle. What does he say in this epistle? Verse 12, he who has the Son, he who has, the son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So here you have it. Either you have the Son of God in your life or you don't. If you have the Son of God in your life through the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have life. And if you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. It's as clear as that. A Christian is somebody who is inhabited by the Holy Spirit, by the Son of God, by Christ. And his argument is this. If Jesus Christ is in your life, through the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be some evidence of that. It won't be perfect. But go with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to read this. There will be a moral change in our life. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. By this, now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Truth's not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we're in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, just as he's walked. And John is very perceptive here. He knows that people can say one thing and do another. Um, maybe you know people like that. But he says, look, if, if you say you know Christ, then you, there's going to be some love for the commandments of God. There's going to be some desire to follow God. Go down a little further in the same chapter, in verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. And then over to chapter th chapter 3, says a little bit more clearly, 
chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So if Christ is in us, we're going to love the people of God. We're going to love the people of God, regardless of what church they're in, regardless of what, you know, what their outward labels are. We're going to love the people of God. If you don't want to have anything to do with the people of God, you don't ever want to go and be with the saints, maybe Christ isn't in you. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give you a little secret here today. I can tell you a good way to get people really mad at you. Oh, <laughs> I'm serious. If you want to get somebody really, really mad at you, say something that could be interpreted as negative about their children. Try it. Don't, don't try it. But I remember when our children were little, if anybody said anything that was remotely negative about my children, it was a good thing the Holy Spirit was in me because I was ready to do business with them, if you know what I mean. Mama bear, Papa bear, we love our children, right? You know what? God loves his children, all of his children. And, and this is just another little sidebar. We need to be careful how we talk about other Christians because they're God's precious children, regardless of what church they belong to, because he loves them all. He doesn't like us, he doesn't like slander, he doesn't like us to be saying negative things about his children, any more than we like to hear anybody say negative things about our children. That's a little parenthesis. So there'll be a moral change. We're gonna have some love for the things of, to, to walk in the ways of God. There's gonna be love for the children of God. And in, in chapter four, verse six, there will be doctrinal agreement. Chapter 4 in 1 John, verse 6, is an interesting verse. We are, as the apostle speaking, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So somebody says they're from God. We say, okay, let's sit down and read the scriptures together. Oh, I don't want anything to do with the scriptures. Well, if you're not, if you if you're of God, you're going to want to listen to the the writings of the apostles, right? We we love the Word of God, and then he goes on to say in in chapter four, verse two, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And you say, well, that's easy enough. We can confess that. The fact is, there were people back then who said Jesus Christ didn't exist. He's just a good idea. And he wasn't really here. And he didn't really say anything. And that's why at the beginning of this epistle, we hear John saying, look, we touched him. We heard him. We smelled him. He was there. And he said very specific things. So if Christ is in us, we're going to have, there'll be a change in our life. We're going to love the church. We're going to love the word of God and, and sound doctrine. In Romans chapter 8, Verse 16, we read this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the Spirit of God testifies to our spirit that we're his spirit. He wants to give us that uh, confirmation, all based in the word of God. So can someone lose their salvation? Well, no, no, they can't. Once you become a child of God, you're always a child of God. Do people confess Christ and give them, give them up, give up Christ? 
apparently. In Matthew 15, verse 13, we read, Every plant which, is, which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. So yes, people who make false professions, that'll be found out one day. <clears throat> here's, a, here's a story about someone you may have heard of, Ted Turner, the wealthy media uh, owner in the United States. And he, and he gave this testimony. He says, I was saved seven or eight times, but when I lost my faith, I felt better about it, Turner said when speaking to a group of humanists. He was raised, he said, in an extremely religious environment, including six years in a Christian prep school with Bible training, daily chapel services, and regular meetings with evangelists. He continued, with no other influences in my life at the time, the way it was pounded into us so much, I think I was saved many times. He even considered missionary work. But when his younger sister got sick, he said, I prayed and nothing happened. And when she died, Turner said he couldn't understand why this loving God he had heard about would allow someone innocent to suffer. So here's a man who says he thought he was saved seven or eight times. But <clears throat> no one would uh, suggest he was a believer today from what he says. God only knows his heart. But people fall away from the faith. Were they really saved? God, God only knows. But if you're truly saved and the Spirit of God is in you, you won't lose your salvation. So what happens then, moving on, what happens at death? And again, the Word of God, we're thankful, speaks to this. And there are two paths. We start out saying this, there's a path for the believer and there's a path for the unbeliever. For the believer, um, <clears throat> We go to be with the Lord right away. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, we read this. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're confident, yes. Well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So that's our assurance as believers. In Philippians 1.23, we read, For I'm hard-pressed between the two. This is the Apostle Paul having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now we know that at some point, uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at some point we're going to have the resurrection of our bodies, right? The rapture. Our bodies are going to be resurrected. God is going to resurrect us, but for example, for those who have died previously, that hasn't happened yet. So we can rightfully ask ourselves the question, uh, what kind of body do we have while we're waiting for the resurrection, right? The question that is on our minds is what kind of body do saints have in heaven right now? Since the permanent resurrection is still in the future, what kind of existence do believers have now? Since the resurrection of the body is still future, are the present saints in heaven in disembodied spirits? Or do they have some kind of temporary, immediate, inter intermediate body that will be discarded on the day of the resurrection? When shall we receive, when we shall receive our permanent glorified body? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm just going to read these verses because it might answer our question. 
For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So to what period in the future is he referring to? Well, since departed believers can sing praises of God and we can communicate with one another, it seems that we must have some sort of body, right? So we, we have read earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that death troubles people. Death torments people, but as believers, death is no longer our enemy. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> We could even say that as a believer, death is our friend. Why is that? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, verse 50 rather, we read this. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The fact is that you and I can't go to heaven just as we are today. No matter how alert and primed, no matter how neatly we've showered and dressed, we're not fit for heaven. We have a decaying body. So death rescues us as believers from the endlessness of this existence. It is the means by which those who love God finally are brought to him. And Paul had no illusions as to whether heaven was better than earth. He was itching to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. Death is our friend because it reminds us that heaven is near, as near as a heartbeat. And death is not the end of the road, only a bend in the road. The road winds only through those paths which the Lord himself has gone. Often we say that Christ will meet us on the other side. Well, that's true, but it might be a little misleading. He actually, he walks with us here and then guides us through the opening. We'll meet him there because we have met him here. So the best is yet to come. Now, for those who have not received the Lord Jesus Christ, it's another story. It's a sad story. And we know the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We know the story of the rich man being tormented in Hades. And um, to be quite frank, it's really hard to visualize these things and imagine them because it's beyond our comprehension, beyond our emotions. Fact of the matter is, it's very clear in the Word of God that if we refuse Christ, that the Bible reserves for us eternal punishment. Now, I have a little chart here. I'm going to finish with this. We're going to read it line by line, line horizontal by line horizontal line. The Christian at death, we go into Christ's presence. Our body stays in the grave. And then we have the bodily resurrection of the rapture, and our body will join our soul. And then we'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ in heaven for uh, to meet with Christ. We'll be judged what we've done in our body, good or bad. And then our eternal destiny is heaven. Old Testament believers, they went into Abraham's bosom, paradise, their soul left in the grave, and their resurrection will be at Christ's second coming, where their bodies will join their soul. And they too will have a judgment for rewards 
and the eternal destiny will be heaven. The tribulation believer, people come to Christ during the tribulation, Christ's presence, they're going to Christ's presence. Remember in Revelation chapter 6, we have the souls of people and they're their person uh, praying out to God, the martyrs, their bodies in the grave. The resurrection is Christ's second coming. Their body will join the soul. There will be judgment for rewards. And the eternal state will be the new heavens and the new earth. The unbeliever, when he dies, he goes to a place of torment bodies in the grave and then the resurrection is at the end of the millennium where the body joins the soul and the unbeliever will appear before the great white throne and will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity these are solemn words so i'm going to conclude as i started welcome to eternity five minutes after you die you will either have had your first glimpse of heaven with its euphoria and bliss or your first genuine experience of unrelenting horror and regret. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. Be wrong about a lot of things, but don't be wrong about where you'll spend eternity. The Word of God shows us how we can have eternal life and know it. Christ died for our sins. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. Our blessed God and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that we can know that we're going to heaven when we die. And we're so grateful for what you did on the cross for, our, for us. I pray that you'll bless your word to our hearts today. And if there's somebody here who's not certain that they're saved, I pray, Lord, that they'll cry out to you and ask you to come into their life. Bless your word to us now and as we continue and witness this baptism in our Savior's precious name. Amen.